tuned in to the Generation Green podcast, amplifying the voices of Black youth fighting for climate and environmental justice. This season is called Black and Breathless, and every episode will aim to connect environmental factors to justice issues. That is known as environmental justice and covers everything on the rungs of white supremacy and police brutality, environmental racism to capitalism. This was the voice of Jalen Ward, and here are our fellow hosts. Ayana Albertini Florent. Hey everyone, this is the voice of Travis Flowers. Hey y'all, this is Elsa Mengistu. On this episode, we'll be talking about what it takes to build a regenerative system, starting with what it really means and you know how does that relate to our world and how we fit in it. So to begin with, a regenerative system is basically defined as a system which is able to restore itself to which it was once or even further develop itself. One thing that we know that we see every single day in our lives that definitely defines exactly what it is, is nature. Our connection to nature is directly related to what we call life and what feeds us, has us breathe, gives us food, everything. So once our understanding of a regenerative system and a sustainable system can be differentiated, we can now have a better understanding of what it takes to build a better future. Sustainability is something that we all know of when, as it relates to climate change, environmental uh, conservation, as well as environmental justice. But just in the word itself, sustain means to conserve its current position, not necessarily promoting development. So to move forward and to combat um, issues such as climate change, uh, racial justice, racial injustice rather, and other environmental injustice systems, we want to build a regenerative system so that we can thrive throughout our time here on Earth. Thanks, Travis. That was a really comprehensive definition. Um, I wanted to provide an analogy that gives a little bit more color um, about the differences between regenerative and sustainability. For this, I want to use a garden analogy. A regenerative system is similar to a gardener when designing their garden. So a gardener doesn't just make a garden. Instead, a skilled gardener develops an understanding of the key processes operating in the garden. And thus, they make judicious decisions on how and where to intervene to reestablish flows of energy that are vital to the health of the garden. So in this same way, someone who is designing a system for regeneration makes decisions to create a thriving ecosystem rather than one. Rather, they make decisions that indirectly influence whether the ecosystem degrades or flourishes over time. So with a regenerative system, we aren't, as Travis said, we aren't just trying to sustain or maintain a status quo or adapt, but we're really trying to flourish all the components of the system. Um, so those components oftentimes will include nature because humans are part of the natural world. Uh, we can't be separated from it. So anything that we design should be mimicked after nature. Um, and we should see ourselves as embedded within the web of natural processes rather than stewarding over them. Um, another key component of designing a regenerative system is viewing wealth holistically. Um, a regenerative society doesn't only measure wealth through capital, um, but it measures wealth through 
harmony, through health, through um, social, cultural, um, and experiential uh, livelihood. The whole system is only as strong as its weakest link. So all within that system must be covered and taken care of in order to really mean holistic wealth. A regenerative system also needs to be innovative, adaptive, and responsive. So we know that we're living in a world under climate change. So resilience is a key component to any system that is being designed. We need to design our systems that can handle changing, accelerating world. Our systems should not only be circular, but they should always also be spiral, taking into account the growth that will inevitably happen in any uh, system that is created. Our systems should honor community and place. So each community consists of a diverse group of people, traditions, beliefs, and different institutions. So our a, a truly regenerative system is one that is inclusive and equitable and honors the community that it is based from. A regenerative system should also have robust circulatory flow. So just like humans, like we depend on a circulation of oxygen, on nutrients. Our economic systems and our social systems also depend on a ever circulating flow of money, information, resources, goods, and services to nourish every part of its human web and network. The circulation of money, information, um, that all needs to be done efficiently and it needs to have a component of reuse. So businesses and economies can reach their regenerative potential. And then lastly, a regenerative system must have uh, empowered participation. So beyond whatever moral belief one has, there's a scientifically grounded systemic requirement to address inequality, racism, prejudice, and injustice for the health and harmony of the whole. So this isn't just something that um, should be considered, but this is actually integral to the system itself. So yeah, as, as Ayana just wrapped up saying, we definitely need to focus on the fact that as much as we want to build a generative system and a system that gives back to itself and builds on itself, we must focus on the aspects that cover the inequality, racism, prejudice, and injustice for us and all the people who make up the system from the top to the bottom, whether it be the highest of the economy to the lowest of the social stratum. We're gonna to touch in now on some of the things that are part of our economy and society today that fight against the development of our generative system. I really resonate with what you guys are saying, like sustainability and a regenerative system are not the same. Capitalism sustains degrading our world, our social systems, our environment, our communities. So I think in building a regenerative system, you have to address abolition. And I'm talking about police ab abolition. I'm talking about prison abolition. So what does that look like? Everybody wants to know what are we going to replace it with? But we need to reimagine how we how we go about our means of justice. Right now we have punitive justice, and that is if you do something wrong, you're going to jail. 
And that is not, that is not okay. That doesn't transform society. That doesn't help anyone. What people are really addressing right now, and what I've even took to in this narrative is restorative justice, but that still depends on jail. Communities come together to decide what should happen to the perpetrator and how the victim should heal from it, but it still involves the carceral system. So we need to be looking at transformative justice. We need to rehabilitate people for mental health issues that inspired violent crime. We need centers with accommodations for families, attention to dietary needs, freedom to move throughout the facility, and the ability to learn a trade and unionize on it and not be unpaid for your labor. People who have you know, made a mistake in their life should be able to still generate income to support their families because they're still human you know they still have a network they still have community and we can't chastise people from community for their wrongdoings and we keep doing that in our society and it's it's old <laughs> it's old it's very draconian and we need to move on we need to address transformation you know people deserve humane living conditions when they're when they've done something wrong. And we can see that in this country, even if you haven't done anything wrong, even if you're just thriving, humane living conditions aren't even guaranteed to you. So what do you think people who are incarcerated are going through right now? People who work in agriculture don't have the ability to unionize. Right now, Driscoll Strawberries is facing backlash from their laborers saying, we're not going to accept this anymore. You're going to pay us and we're going to unionize. And in many states, especially Florida, that is illegal. So look up Fair Food. They're a great nonprofit trying to get um, agricultural workers to unionize. But on, on a solution-oriented step, I think a micro step, just an inch forward, would be decarcerating people who've been convicted for petty crimes like loitering address fraud, public intoxication, and resisting arrest. According to Vera Institute of Justice, 82.48% of police arrests are for nonviolent offenses like the ones above and including drug abuse, disorderly conduct, loitering, forgery, DUI, drinking in public, sex work, forgery, family conflict, why are we arresting people who need mediation, who need union rights, who need mental health services? And the only answer I could really think of is free labor. Because under the 13th Amendment, once you have been arrested, once you have been jailed, once you have been incarcerated, you are a slave of the state. So that is just how capitalism sustains itself. So we're not talking about sustainability anymore. For liberation, we need something that is regenerative. So, you know, if you want to learn more about state-sation violence and how we can take care of people who have done harm without violence, I really recommend reading Are Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis. That really gets that 
it gets you thinking forward. It doesn't make you think, how can we replace prison? It makes you really go, ooh, how can we reform society? So take a gander into that. I'm going to let Elsa get into how the police then militarize themselves to sustain capitalism. Hey, y'all. So if we've come to the realization that police in the United States are really only here to protect property um, and by nature kind of uphold the racial hierarchy and just systems of oppression that exist, then we really have to acknowledge like, what does that mean for the military? Is the military really going around to spread democracy? Um, or are they doing the same thing that the police here are doing? And what is the re relationship that our police have with the military and what the military has with the relationship with other countries that are doing the same thing that we are doing here, but abroad? Um, if we look at the United States, we know that we have nearly, we have arguably over 800 military bases across the entire globe. How many countries have one military base in the United States? Zero. That is insane. Oh, like when people say the United States is spreading democracy. No, we're not spreading democracy. A lot of the times when we go to war, we're going to war for natural oil and for resources. And we have an entire system where it's come down to like the Pentagon missing trillions of dollars. We invest trillions of dollars into this military, into our military that literally only exists to go around and steal natural resources, to steal oil, to go to war for oil, to go to war for um, for land, to take other people's land and resources. If that is what our military looks like, then our police is a reflection of that. But if we're really going to understand imperialism and how like all of that kind of jumbles together, we really need to look at the relationship that this country has with Israel. Israel is one of the largest recipients of U.S. foreign aid since World War II. Um, to date, the United States has provided Israel with $142 billion um, in missile defense funding. And so that is massive amounts of money that we are giving to Israel. Um, and not only are we just giving money to Israel in the form of military support and just economic assistance, we're allowing Israel to train U.S. police officers. Um, Chicago, New York police officers, Baltimore police officers, Florida, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, California, Arizona, Connecticut, like an entire list of um, police groups and um, these police groups in the United States receive training from Israeli officers in the United States um, and in Israel, which is both funded privately and through taxpayer money. The same police in the United States who we obviously can come to an understanding and agreement that there are human rights violations, um, like the basis of policing itself, it's racist and oppressive. Um, if they're being trained from a military system, a security system, a police system of Israel that has literally been um, called out by human rights groups, the UN, for um, extrajudicial executions, unlawful killings, um, suppression of freedom of voice, etc., through government surveillance and just excessive force, which is exactly what we're seeing in the United States that is happening in Israel by Israel's police force and their military. And that's the same thing that's happening here. Um, it really only gives us like one solid conclusion, which is the fact that both these systems of heavy militarization and imperialism and capitalism, they're all kind of working hand in hand, not just in the US, but abroad. 
it's even more more so connected because if we're looking at this through the sense of the environment, we live in the United States, which has a history of ignoring native sovereignty, um, which has no history of native genocide, which has a history of harming native communities, of taking their resources. Literally right now, um, native groups across this country have literally been fighting to prevent pipelines on their land. If that is what's happening in the United States, that is also happening in Palestine with the annexation of West Bank, of um, indigenous Palestinian land being stolen, indigenous Palestinian resources and farming land and um, just resources also being taken. There is that direct lineage of like the military, militarism, imperialism, a police state of, um, of indigenous genocide. It's all literally happening in this part of the world it's happening in a completely different part of the world because they're all part of one similar system that are being funded being funded by the u.s it's being funded by people it's being funded by systems that are not sustainable that are not putting back into the system the same way it's taking out and so what's happening here is happening elsewhere it's part of multiple systems that are going on so just as Elsa said, you know, the connection of all of our systems definitely influence the, I guess, the, the miss of our regenerative system that we live in now. Whereas whether it be socially, economically, um, we're just not seeing the, the tie-in together between all the aspects of our life that inspire regenerative system. With a focus on the economics of it, I personally want to go to the root where in the past, um, especially on American soil, where enslaved Africans were not necessarily seen as anything more than property. That in itself um, disconnects humans from understanding that, you know, we are all connected. So just through that, a circular economy cannot be built. If we're seeing people who share the same blood and have the same I guess, depend on the same resources to thrive and exist are not seen as equal. To begin with here, where I'm going is the fact that in these days, not only were Black people not given the rights that they needed to just operate as any other human being that they could see, but they were not given the opportunity to capitalize on their mental investment, meaning that in this time, limit, resources were limited to these people when it comes to getting basic needs, food, shelter, protection, especially from the oppressors. And these people had to depend on the tools that they would make with their very hands every day with the little that they had. Mind you, this is no pay. This is not going to Home Depot or the hardware store to get tools, to get materials. They had to depend on whatever their environment was provided. This in itself highlights how black people have been a part of what makes the regenerative system that America needs to see today. But I bet we will never be called up in the wrongs of hierarchy later on in the, in the coming years when it comes to saying how important a regenerative system is and how amazing this kind of lifestyle is. To highlight, black people were also one of the main sources of labor when it comes to developing technology that we see today from bed frames to boat propellers and the list goes on to begin with now 
1858, the U.S. State Attorney General confirmed a court decision refusing to grant patents to slaves' inventions and actually grant these patents to the slave owners. The slave owners obviously saw that this was right because of, after all, the black slaves were simply tools themselves who could create more tools. Doesn't that sound regenerative? To further on, their inventions that we see every day, much like uh, a vacuum pan or whether it be a bed frame, as I said earlier, that people that look just like us back in the day were never ever given the opportunity to own themselves. Can you imagine the wealth that would be created if these enslaved people were given the chance to build something for themselves? Moving further into what a circular economy is in general, this defines an economy that doesn't see waste as a product to be dealt with, to be stored somewhere, to be recycled even. Recycling should actually be something that happens at the end. Whereas a regenerative system through circular economy sees waste as a tool, much like, that, much like what was explained earlier. Companies and businesses throughout the world need to have a different view on what waste is, seen as a resource rather than an issue. There have been several companies across the world, um, some like, if I can name one, I think there's one called Loop, actually, which kind of brings back the old milkman model. What they do, um, they take general household products, um, sometimes milk, actually, um, products like lotion, um, mayonnaise, washing detergent, etc., and they've developed canisters or containers that one can use the product from and then return to be refilled at a local service. Inventions like these, um, you know, it's hard to not believe that if given opportunity, people who look like us, meaning African Americans or members of the African diaspora, would come up with these inventions and would be of highlighted status. So to keep it going, I want to touch into the political systems that almost break down the, our opportunities or rob us of the opportunities to capitalize on these opportunities. <laughs> I'm sorry, I said opportunities like a hundred times, but you get the point. Hey, so Jalen Ward back on the scene and we're going to be talking about Afro-socialism. So no, this is not an African-American adaptation of socialism, but rather using the idea of the laboring class coming to equity in society non-violently. That's how it differs from communism to my understanding, but we could have that discourse in the comments when y'all see this. Um, but it's the idea that Africa should and was should be and was a classless society where all forms of life, animate and inanimate, are equal. So this takes Marx and Engels' stance on the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, you know, having this rift, but it not being racial. It totally, he totally disregards race. And as an African person who has been literally captured, kidnapped, and human trafficked to the new world, you know that labor is directly related to your ethnicity. So, 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 people like Kwame Nkrumah, 
you guys should know who that is, but he is who brought independence to Ghana. Um, he used this ide ideology to, you know, liberate working class people. And, you know, we, there's many opinions on whether this was effective or not. But I think it's very important to, I think it's very important to um, recognize this. And, um, yeah, it's, just, it's very important to recognize that you cannot progress under the terms of capitalism. So this is, this is that stance. We're moving on to the solutions. And my favorite, communism, is like the same thing, Afro-communism. It says, hey, we, the proletariat, believe y'all need to give us our check and you need to get out of here and return the means of production to us because we are what make this system work. So some bold women communists that I want to um, highlight are Grace P. Campbell, Louise Thompson Patterson, Esther Cooper, Audley Moore, and my personal hero, Claudia Jones. She actually created Carnival in the UK, and that's what she's remembered for. But it's supposed to be like a day of recognition for working class um, Caribbeans across the diaspora. But um, yeah, you can't have you can't have a movement trying to assimilate into communism. We have to pick up the radical means. We have to understand that labor shouldn't be our goal. Like we shouldn't be asking kindergartners what they want to be when they grow up and expecting answers like firefighter, firefighter, not firefighter, uh -huh. <laughs> firefighter and police officer. Stop indoctrinating children to be facets of capitalism. And that is what these women worked on. So this is how we transition into regenerative systems. And just as a note, a lot of these women, a lot of these Afro-communists and Afro-socialists have been referred to as Marxist. And Karl Marx would not even call himself a Marxist. Furthermore, he leached off of his wife while he wrote philosophies on the proletariat that he would never encounter and he's never even been to a factory. So do not call my ancestors Marxists. We are communists. We are the original communists. The Haitian Revolution was a communist revolution. Um, I wanted to speak on a system that is very similar to Afro-communism, um, which is Afro-communitarianism. So communitarianism refers to a philosophy where, um, or like just a way of living, where com connection between the individual and community is really emphasized. Um, so now that we're um, talking about restorative systems and that is starting to catch on, um, and we're starting to think about the um, reconciliation and transformation uh, within a system or a community, we really have to go back and credit um, indigenous African uh, societies for how they lived. Um, so Afro-communitarianism is nothing new. It really is just referring to that indigenous African way of living where um, values were intrinsically communitarian 
um, prescribing to the protection and the promotion of harmony, cohesion, consensus, interdependence, community, clan, culture, nation. So all of this was um, pri upmost prioritized. Um, and that's in stark contrast to what we have now um, where Western philosophy um, pretty much just acknowledges individualism, self-pleasure, self-satisfaction, autonomy, independence, rationality. These are the values of our society and we can see why it's so broken. Um, so in Afro-communitarianism, being human is understood as encompassing the entire collective. So kind of like the principle of Ubuntu, um, you are a person through other people. Um, so that communal enterprise has a lot of implications for how um, they saw responsibility, for how they dealt with justice, forgiveness, um, and reconciliation and how that was conceptualized. Because the Afro-communitarian understanding of personhood is more about the collective and the community, we can kind of see how things like uh, superiority, like white supremacy or inequality just can't stand. Because if you are who you are through other people, through the health of the community, everyone is intrinsically linked and there's really no way to be superior to others when um, your livelihood depends on them in a very holistic way. So that's just something we should really consider as a social and a political system um, as we think of restorative and regenerative design. So looking back at how the Western political and economic system has been set up today, um, at the base of capitalism is a system of extractivism. So extractivism simply refers to the mode of accumulation that started about 500 years ago um, when the world economy moved to a capitalist system. Um, so that began with a structure of conquest and colonization of the Americas, Africa, and Asia. So extractivism is a mechanism of colonial and neo-colonial plunder and appropriation. Extractivism depends on violence, it depends on theft, it depends on exploitation, and it depends on environmental degradation. So by doing, by using these violent means um, of acquisition, um, the capitalist system is able to thrive because it never actually has to um, really kind of pay full price for what it, for the resources it uses to keep the system going. So there's always um, the ability for people at the top to profit massively because they're not really incurring all of the, the real costs um, to whatever their economic activity is. Extractivism is seen in so many different parts of our capitalist system. Um, capitalism in itself requires the use of free, unpaid labor, which leads to dependence, resource scarcity. Uh, scarcity will lead to violence, and violence leads ends up leading to incarceration. 
Um, and then down the line, the cost of incarceration is that it takes away from family, takes away from schools, um, and it doesn't transform perpetrators. Since the Industrial Revolution, our society has um, been able to rapidly accelerate because of our extraction of energy and fossil fuels. The process of getting that energy is very extractive in many different ways. Just the process of getting fossil fuels from the earth itself is in itself extraction. So one of, the, one of the ones that we know, coal mining, which I mean stems from especially the United States before the 1800s, which yes includes slavery time, um, means that especially to highlight the free labor aspect and exploitation of human beings. I mean, directly to feed the energy, to light the streets of the USA depended on the breaking backs of enslaved African-Americans. We know for a fact that none other than people who were prisoners or who were slaves or who were just so-called lowlifes of society were the ones that are out there extracting the resources from our earth. So to break down into further processes like oil drilling, fracking, and other processes that it takes to get fossil fuels from our earth, it is directly related to the process of extractivism and capitalism behind it. Whereas Ayana highlighted, the people who are on top, who are benefiting, who are getting the bank in their pockets, are not seeing the lives that are out there taking from the, our earth. Now, given the fact that fossil fuel extraction especially is a process that you know, it fuels resources being traveled across the world and, you know, it lights all the streets and it, it brings food on our table in a lot of little ways. This system is not regenerative as each process degrades land across the world and further harms us and kind of feeds into the same system that we have that's harming us through climate change, through many other systems, whether it be social oppression and economic oppression of people who don't have the opportunity to speak for themselves. So we're going to go into other stuff that we may see today, other than just the cars we drive, but also the clothes we wear and how fast fashion in itself is an extractive industry. Fast fashion, um, upon learning about just how um, exploitative fast fashion was, I was honestly devastated just because I like really love fashion. Um, but fast fashion is a very hidden um, but pervasive type of oppression in our world today. A lot of labor for fast fashion is done um, internationally or sometimes domestically in sweatshops, in factories that are extremely unsafe, um, poorly built because they're trying to get these factories off of the ground quickly um, to keep up with production. A lot of workers in the fast fashion industry are extremely underpaid. They often do not make a living wage. Sometimes they're not even voluntarily working for these companies. They're forced into labor. Part of human trafficking is labor trafficking, um, where people are stolen, just as our ancestors were um, from Africa hundreds of years ago. They're, they're stolen from one place and they're brought to these factory towns. Sometimes their documentation, their passports are held and they're threatened often with violence to work in these really unsafe working conditions. So that's one way fast fashion is really violent. Also, sometimes fast fashion, those that it does employ, Oftentimes, they just won't pay workers. They'll create these contracts, they'll promise a certain amount, 
um, and then they'll just unexpectedly cancel their contracts or they'll just kind of just be shady and uh, refuse to pay up. That's something that's a trend right now on social media in the ethical fashion world is the hashtag pay up, where consumers are now demanding that brands make good on their contracts and not participate in waged theft. Some of your favorite brands like Fashion Nova, Boohoo, some of these are American, some of these are brands based in the UK, but they participate in wage theft and they subcontract so that their wage theft isn't easily traceable to them and it kind of gets murky when trying to hold them accountable with the law. So I think Fashion Nova owes about almost $4 million in wage theft. Not all of this this exploitation is happening internationally. Fashion Nova actually has sweatshops in LA, the garment district in LA, and they are complicit in wage theft right um, on our soil um, with immigrant workers who are often undocumented. So there's a lot of corruption in the fast fashion industry Um, Not to mention the environmental degradation that's going on. Agriculture in itself, as we know it today, is unfortunately an extractive process. And I mean, you know, we all love the the food we eat. You know, we we know we open the fridge or we go to the store. You know, what we see on the shelves is what we get. And we're happy to put it in our bodies for the most part. But we're not seeing where it comes from. And in a lot of cases, land across the U.S. um, or other places like South America and Australia, um, a lot of land is dependent on the planting of things that we don't necessarily see, uh, especially as it relates to products that we use, especially on our skin, like palm oil or even soybean oil. And the biggest one of all, I would say, as a, as a destructor and a, and a factor against our regenerative system is livestock agriculture, primarily cattle livestock agriculture, where acres and acres and acres of land, not necessarily just land, but forest that the earth depends on to create oxygen and also just retain its general health are completely desolated and the land created and now turned into a barren wasteland where it's now all monocropping where it's all meant for one crop palm oil or soybean plants these plants are not native to these areas and let's not talk about just livestock agriculture you know cattle was never a natural um you know inhabitant of any of these rainforests or the outback in Australia. However, this is what the land is primarily being used for now, which of course these things need water to survive. So not only is, I I guess, an increased demand being put on the land being provided, but also just the water it takes to feed and keep these things alive, which further depletes groundwater like in Lake Chad in the Sahara Desert in Africa, which is kind of what is even providing the Saharan dust that we're seeing come across the Atlantic now where the groundwater there was depleted and now a whole lake has turned into a dry bed where we're getting all the microorganisms in the dust transported across the Atlantic and now in our skies. A solution to this um, is definitely practicing regenerative agriculture practices. There's a um, multiple cases that we can go through that and even some we can practice in our in, uh, in our urban environments, including vertical farming and aquaculture where farms literally survive on recycled water as well as minimal space so many of these issues that we face as it relates to you know climate change and just a degradation of what should be our genetic system can be combated through many different processes 
So if we're talking about capitalism and we're talking about exploitation and we're talking about extractivism and impacts that takes on the world, we'd have to take into consideration the impacts that can have on our health. Um, we live in a healthcare system in the United States, at least, that purposely fails itself to maintain capitalism, to maintain profit, to maintain capital. Um, right now, we're living in a crisis where we have, we're having the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression. Food bank lines are the longest that they've ever been. Um, people just don't know where their next meals are going to be coming. But at the same time, there are potato farms, there are corporations, there are restaurant chains that are throwing away food in the millions of pounds instead of giving it to people that desperately need them. Um, Yemen right now is dealing with an international pandemic, an epidemic within its borders, a war within its borders, um, where nearly one third of its population of 30 million people are classified as malnourished by the United Nations. We live in a system where we have all of this food. We have all of this food in excess, but if we cannot profit off of it right now because people can't purchase it, we throw it away. Um, we get rid of it. And so what is the purpose of a political or an economic system to be upheld if it's not taking care of the people that are living in that system unless its entire sole purpose is to maintain capital? We're living in the middle of a pandemic, like I said, where... We can see huge disparities in, in care and who is being harmed, who is being impacted by this virus. Um, we live in a country where 45,000 people a year die from lack of healthcare access. We pay more per capita for less than any other country does. Um, and healthcare is not even a right. We have commodified healthcare into a product that if you are privileged to have access to the means to take care of yourself, you get to take care of yourself. But if you don't have that, you don't. And so we can literally see in the past few months, COVID-19 has exposed that capitalism will kill itself to maintain itself. We have a system where there are no free tests, or if you do have free tests, they're limited. We had a lack of COVID preparation. We didn't have protective wear for hospitals and nurses and people that are on the front lines of this crisis, but we were able to fund the police who were spreading this virus even more. It is a known fact that police are vectors of this virus. They are in everyone's communities coming in and out. You can see photos and videos of them not wearing masks. They're making this virus worse. We can see in the past few pro the protests and uprisings that have been happening, police are making this virus worse by throwing tear gas into the air, by arresting people in the dozens, um, by sending them to the epicenters of this virus, which are jail cells. In Chicago, a study literally showed that one in six cases of COVID-19 can be traced to um, Cook County Jail, which at one point was known as the largest source of coronavirus cases in the United States. So if we understand that like extractivism and capitalism are a thing, we have to acknowledge how it is failing our healthcare system, how it is failing our physical health, how it's failing us through COVID-19, how it's failing us um, through policing. Like this literally exists all at once. It's killing us from all angles. Um, and our health is one of those angles. Um, so police brutality, um, how we responded to COVID-19, the fact that people are, we're living in a crisis with excess food, but people are not having access to those excess food because they don't have excess money. And so those are the failures of this system. And that is what extractivism and capitalism have given us in this stage so far. Wow. Listen, Elsa, you just laid it down and it's just really aggravating 
hearing this and experiencing this at a firsthand account. Like in New York right now, young people protesting are getting arrested for resisting arrest. No charge, no real charge. The charge is resisting arrest. So it, it speaks to my spirit because when you do something like that to a body, to a body, you're human, like you have no respect for humanity. And what is the reason? What is the reason? Why is our bloodshed so vital to this system to sustain capitalism? And to me, it's spiritual warfare on us. White people, people who are, you know, enforcing capitalism are unleashing spiritual warfare on us. They're spilling our blood for their ancestors, whether they recognize it or not. When they lynch us, when they put us on crosses, when they put us on crosses, y'all, what does that look like? That's ritualistic. That is ritualistic. And white people love to, love to you know, erase that, scrub that out of their, their history. But before we lived in such a left brain society, we were mixing church and state and they continue to mix church and state. And this is how they act. This is how they move. They're spilling our blood to empower their settler, violent colonizer ancestors. Take that as you will, because they're sustaining their movement with our blood. They're using us as sacrifices for them. So you know what? We need to look back to our ancestors who spilled the blood. <laughs> and I'm just keeping it a stack. We have to look back at our ancestors who spilled the blood. And I'm not encouraging y'all to practice things that you don't know anything about because you will get wrapped up. But I want you to take a look at history and how this works and how how spirituality is really intersected in every one of our actions whether we pay attention to it or not. So Nat Turner Rebellion, well-educated pastor. He galvanized people through his oratory skills. This man was a griot. And his spiritual influence had a logical influence on people. They're like, well, if I want liberation, we're going to have to, we're going to have to, you know, get the, get the Glock, get the gut, get the gut, get the gut. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So that's what inspired the Nat Turner Rebellion. It was a sermon. You know, they were inspired to spill the blood for the revolution. They were ready to die about this. When Oluwatoyin Salau, rest in peace, became an ancestor too soon, she said, I'm going to die about this. And that's the energy that we need to have if we want to create this regenerative system. Because after Nat Turner was assassinated, you know what they did after they lynched him? Doctors dissected his organs, passed it out as trophies, handed out his bones as trophies, turned his skin into purses and grease. What does that sound like to you? What does that sound like to you? I'm not sitting in church with them. I'm really not. I'm really not. But let's move on. Haitian Revolution, we love, Black people love to bring this up, but 
Our ancestors were in the forest August 13th, August 14th in 1791 at Bois Cayman in Haiti, and they sacrificed a black pig. By they, I'm talking about Bukman Dutti and Mambo Marionette, who is now a Loa. So much respect. I do not practice Haitian voodoo, but this is what happened. This is our history. They sacrificed a black pig to evoke the Loa Izili Dantor and Ogun for direction and guidance in the revolution. And we know that the Haitian revolution was successful, first black nation in the new world. And as much as people like to look at Haiti, it's that extractivism that sabotaged that. So we need to be asking our ancestors, we need to be asking Mambo Marionette, who's now Loa, for that guidance in the revolution because the work is not done. There's several instances in history, the Mau Mau uprising, where they took a blood oath in accordance with the QQ traditions, swearing to expel the colonizer or face death. So I want you to know that our ancestors, they were making sacrifices, they were feeding their ancestors for liberation. And whether it be our blood or theirs, a combination, up to you to decide, up for you to study. It's really up for you to study. Again, Stono Rebellion, 1739, organized at the Stono River. This was organized by Congolese enslaved people, formerly enslaved people who are now ancestors, put respect who were venerating the Virgin Mary, known to them as Mother Nzambi Pungu. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I'm Panamanian, not Congolese. So let us know in the comments. Let's make some discourse, which means Mother of God. So this is, you know, Virgin Mary Nzambi. Yamaya, however you say it, it's the Mother of Water, the Mother of God. So they organize this by consulting their spirits, the Orisha, their forms of spirits, and then going for liberation. So we can't disconnect our spiritual health during this time at all. We have to connect with whoever feels comfortable. And I, I really think it's important to look back at our traditional African religions or how we practice them in combination with our original West African and even Central African um, ancestral veneration and really look for guidance because they're there. And if we don't, we will be misguided. If we don't consult history, if we don't consult our family, our Egbe, then we can't, we can't move forward. And there's clear proof that it works. So we need to get hit or get lost. And like our ancestors did, we need to be ready to die for this, you know, because if you want an end of oppression, then you have to also realize that you have to be an abolitionist. You have to be anti-capitalist and you have to be a spiritual holistic being. You have to be taking care of yourself because you can't fight a revolution, you know, sick, spiritually sick physically sick. And that's how capitalism is sustained against us. So let's stop talking about sustainability. Let's stop talking about it. We need to be talking about how we can regenerate our mental, emotional, and physical health. 
I just wanted to quickly comment on um, some of the research that has been conducted to show the link between racism and um, mental health disorders. An impact is made um, as early as childhood on our mental health um, and increases the likelihood of depression and anxiety. Um, in addition uh, to just direct racism, poverty, even just being uh, sequestered into the urban areas has a profound impact on our mental health. White scientists have admitted that nature is a powerful antidepressant um, and nature aids in the part of your brain that helps in emotional regulation. And then contrarily, they've also found that being in an urban environment all the time without uh, much exposure to greenery has a negative effect on mental health. It's interesting to see like the geographical and spatialities of racism that is at play here. Um, so not only are we more predisposed to suffering from mental health issues because of racism, we don't have the tools at our disposal to deal with those um, mental health disorders because of white supremacy. So it's a never ending constant like positive feedback loop that we're stuck in and even science recognizes so um yeah we've gotta we gotta figure out an, a better way moving forward now more than ever it's important to care for our mental health our physical well-being social and spiritual health as we discussed earlier this is all part of wealth and not only that, it's a revolutionary act. So I just want to check in with anyone and hear what our folks are doing to stay well right now. Um, I'm just taking the time, honestly, really to listen to myself. I feel like just in the world we live in, we're told to not listen to ourselves, our own intuition. Um, what your body needs is what your body needs. Your body will tell you, your spirit will tell you what you need. Just check in with yourself day in and day night. I'm just honestly checking in with myself and just, I don't know, I'm just listening to myself because that's the best thing I can do. Yeah, same. Uh, I'm actually glad you just mentioned that because even now as a, as a content creator through my Instagram uh, at Shift Flows, I really have come to a point of almost like a, I don't know, it's like a chef's block. You know, you have like art block. It's kind of like a chef's block where I haven't been super inspired to create stuff. And I think it's kind of just been as a result of like just underlying, like maybe stresses I've been going through and all of that. And I think at this time, relating to like listening to myself, I have taken my stuff back, kind of take a break from posting on the page and all of that. And trying to just focus on you know, like, what do I really want? for this page and it led me to even think of like rebranding. So it's kind of just goes to show how you can really benefit from listening to yourself. Amen. Uh, personally, I came, recently came from a trip. I was in Southeast Florida and I just am practicing holding joy at the same time as grief. Right now with everything going on, it was really hard to like just be present with my family and like having fun, like enjoying nature, eating good food. It was kind of like at first it was hard for me to transition into being able to experience joy. But after a while, I realized that, you know, it's we're in this 
uh, fight this revolution for the long haul. So we are going to need to learn how to hold those two things at the same time. That's just life. Uh, so it was great for me to be in nature. It really lifted my mood. Like, it's definitely real. Um, and just be able to practice holding joy. That being said, I'm hoping you guys are taking care of yourself, but some exciting news in the past few days that have come out. The Dakota Access Pipeline has been forced to be temporarily put on pause. Basically, a district court ruled that um, the pipeline has to go on pause until the company that's building it um, releases an environmental impact statement, which will take over approximately over a year to build. And I mean, people have been fighting for this for years. We've literally, like, since Obama has been in president, people have been protesting in mass numbers across the world, across the country. And I think this is a really awesome moment for us to really just think back and think, um, like, if these pipelines are coming to a halt. It's in our hands for us to have the ability to really build systems that we live in harmony with. The Atlantic Coast Pipeline was also canceled as well. And so right now we're seeing a crumbling of these pipelines that are literally harming our planet, extracting from our planet, being put on pause, being canceled. And so if we are finally being able to do that, we can really take it a step further and build the infrastructure to have systems um, and communities that are not being extracted from, that are not doing the extracting. Like we can have regener regenerative systems, regenerative communities. Um, and so like this is, this is like amazing news that's come out in the past week, but this is just something that like we really have to keep the pressure on because the pipeline didn't happen overnight. Um, there are billions of dollars, trillions of dollars, systems, countries, um, power structures invested in harming our earth and invested in harming our people for profit. And if we can put a pause on that right now, we can put a pause on it permanently, just as long as we keep the pressure. We love that. We love progress as it relates to just the developing of our regenerative future. And with that, people, I just want to give you a reminder, you know, keep a connection with your environment, whether it be your natural environment, social environment, and most importantly, yourself. So we can maintain and even just build a symbiotic relationship with everything around us. And remember to go forward with compassion. Think about your spiritual awareness, your spiritual health, as well as your physical and mental, so that we can live just as nature, which feeds us and keeps us alive. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Black and Breathless. If you guys need more info, please go ahead and follow Generation Green on Instagram at generation underscore underscore green, as well as visit our brand new website, generationgreen.info.